Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, so it is time for the next president, making this week's book of the week Dark Horse, The Surprise Election and Political Murder of President James A. Garfield by Kenneth D. Ackerman. The accompanying cocktail was not quite as easy. I had already done a Dark Horse cocktail when I reviewed Don Tyler uh, because he was my surprise favorite. And internet search provides that James Garfield's favorite drink was beer. Hmm. But that he also liked peanut butter. Now, I already did a video with a peanut butter beer, though, so that was out. Uh, that same internet search, however, provided this recipe from Ohio Liquor, which I sort of wish I had found earlier since they also provided cocktails for William Henry Harrison, Ulysses S. Grant, and Rutherford B. Hayes. Anyways, this week's cocktail will be a peanut butter old-fashioned, which is one and a half ounces of peanut butter whiskey, three-quarter ounce of rye whiskey, and four dashes of Angostura bitters. And you garnish with an orange twist, which I don't have, and maraschino cherries, which I do have. So, this book actually starts with the 1880 Republican Convention. Well, that, it starts a little bit before that, but the, the main feat part of the book, like once you get past the, the introduction preface area, is the 1880 Republican Convention, uh, where Garfield's nominated for president. The story, really? Tiny bottle, why are you being a pain in my ass? Unreal. Honey, yeah. I can't get a grip on the tiny bottle top to open this. It's tiny and I can't get a grip on it. I, I just can't get a grip on it. <laughs> open at least. I need just be gentle opening it. Do not get glass in there, please. Yeah, that's not the plan, trust me. Okay, well, now I don't feel as bad. Thank you. There you go. It starts about, so this book picks up at the 1880 Republican Convention where Garfield was nominated for president. The actually story, the story itself actually starts about 15 years prior to that with the roots of a long-standing political feud that directly contributed to his assassination. Um, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. I, I for, actually had to go back and pull some information on Garfield's early life from Wikipedia because there's, there, there just wasn't a whole lot of that in the book. Um, I mean, some basics, but not enough to really, you know, know where he came from. So, one and a half ounces of peanut butter. 50 milliliters. That's easy. It means I have an empty. I just chuck it out. That's why I like little bottles when convenient. I didn't mind buying a big bottle of the rye whiskey because we also use it for cooking, you know, uh, marinades for chicken and stuff like that. So, big bottle of, of the rye whiskey was called for. Garfield was born on November 19th, 1831 in Ohio. and So, he was a native son of that state and his, had basically family residences there his entire life. He grew up dirt poor. Uh, he was raised by a single mother because his father died in 1833 when he was you know, one and a half, two years old. He had several siblings and eventually graduated from William Collins College, becoming an attorney like so very many of his predecessors in the White House. Also, like many of his presidential predecessors, he, ha he was a voracious reader, using books as a form of escape from the slings and arrows of life, which, you know, kind of makes him a kindred spirit of mine. I totally get it, dude. He almost became a minister. Uh, that was kind of one of his early, I think it, he was actually called the preacher president because he was like that close to becoming a minister. Uh, before attending college, he had attended the, the oh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Goga, Goja Seminary. It's G-E-A-U-G-A -A -A Seminary to study religion. 
Uh, it was at Goja se Seminary that he met his future wife, Lucretia Rudolph. It was a, um, a co-ed school, basically. And so they met there and they fell in love while he was tutoring her to speak Greek. Four shakes of Angostura bitters. I have to stir it, so let me stir this up. Mm, maraschino cherries. I don't like maraschino cherries in most things, but here we go. So they married on November 11, 1858, and had seven children, two of whom died in early childhood. Um, Garfield served as senator to Ohio State Senate and as a major during the Civil War before making the leap to national politics by being elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1862. He served in the House of Representatives until his nomination to the White House and presidential win in 1880, becoming the first and only president to be nominated from the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, then we get nominations from senators all the time. Secretary of State for a long time was considered the heir apparent to the White House. This is the first time anybody was ever directly elected from the U.S. House of Representatives. So there we are. That's his early story. Back to the book now. So the political feud that eventually paved the road for Garfield's assassination was not between Garfield and anyone else. He was more or less liked, all right? He was a likable man. He was, he was very friendly. He, he got along with people. But the feud in question was between Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York and Senator James Blaine of Maine. Now, in 1866, both of these gentlemen were members of the U.S. House of Representatives. They hadn't yet made the leap to Senate. It was a small squabble over whether or not to create a position as a public servant to oversee kind of graft and draft in the U.S. military. This would have been another patronage position. Conkling was against it and Blaine had sponsored the bill. Now, Blaine was initially kind of meh about Conkling's attacks on the bill, but eventually it got to him and something about just the vituperousness of Conkling's attack bothered Blaine and eventually Blaine struck back, essentially calling Conkling a strutting turkey. And that got a laugh. Conkling did not appreciate being the butt of a joke in, this, in the House of Representatives. And that was it. That was the groundwork for a 20-year feud of inter-party bickering with Conkling leading the stalwart caucus and the Republic, of the Republican Party and Blaine leading the half-breed caucus of the Republican Party. And the two caucuses hated each other. Hate, 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 man. It's not bad. The rye, rye whiskey can be a little harsh. Um, it can cut. You can taste the peanut butter. The peanut butter is a nice after flavor. You can just taste it sitting there on your tongue. So that's pretty good, actually. I like that one. I kind of wish I'd had the orange to, to try it. I have orange bitters, but I'm like, I don't know if I need more bitters in this either. So we'll just let this ride. This one's not too bad. I like it. Now, fast forward 14 years. So that was 1866 that this groundwork was laid. 14 years later, it's now 1880, and the Republican convention to elect their nominee for president is happening in Chicago. There were three contenders for the position at the time. You had Ulysses S. Grant was being backed by Conkling and the stalwarts. Blaine was being backed by the half-breeds. And then James Sherman, who was the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, was being nominated by James Garfield to, to, for president. And these battle lines held steady for several days. They went through 34 rounds of voting, which is an absolutely unheard of number. I think that was the most rounds they had ever had before coming up with their actual nominee. And at heart, what kept this hold from breaking was Conkling's failure to push through the unit rule, which meant that 
any one state's majority would bind all of the delegates from that state to one candidate. And there were members of his own stalwart caucus that jumped ship and said, no, we don't want to do this. We don't want to back this unit rule because he couldn't get that passed in the convention. I have a weird hair thing sticking out over here. Because he couldn't get that unit rule passed in the convention, um, he wasn't able to basically railroad through Grant's nomination. Conkling held a grudge over the people who jumped ship on the unit rule, who, who, who uh, call them? I don't think they called them deserters, they called them something else, but he had a not nice nickname for the people who wouldn't back him on that one from New York. Now the 35th round of balloting came around and Wisconsin, out of the blue, threw all of their votes to Garfield. They said, we, we nominate Garfield. And Garfield tried to step back, he's like, hey, wait, my name is not up for debate here and I don't think that you can really put my name out there because I never agreed to it but that one state throwing all their votes to him started a landslide and on the 36th it was I yeah I think it was the, the 36th he got round he got more votes and I think it was the 37th round uh, he actually got the nomination and what pushed that through was both Senator Blaine and Senator Sherman sent telegrams to their people. Now understand, Sherman sent his to somebody else from the Ohio caucus because Garfield was the now potential nominee. So he sent something else, but to send, send it to somebody else. But it's eventually they both directed their followers to throw their votes to Garfield and to beat out a, uh, another grant term, basically. And uh, that was it. Garfield became the first uh, president to be at the convention for which he was no in which he was nominated. Um, prior to that, the nominees, this was still well before true campaigning became a thing, campaigning as we know it became a thing. So the nominees stayed away and let their, their leg men do the work essentially. Uh, and it would be the same during the, the campaigning process, but for the nomination, nomination, nominating convention, um, he was the first one, first president to be president at the time his name was announced, and the first one to be like Johnny on the spot when he was made the the nominee. So, Conkling, as the political power of New York, was not at all amused by this, and Garfield immediately recognized that he needed Conkling to win New York. Without New York's uh, thirty six, I believe, electoral votes they had, there was no way that he could win the presidential election. So. Conkling was exactly the sort of petty, vengeful prick who, that would deny his party the presidency for spite because he didn't get his way, uh, which was a third term for Grant. He really wanted that. Conkling is an interesting guy. I, I want to find a book on him. There hasn't been one written since like the 1990s, um, which is fine. I've read, you know, I think the, several of the president books I've read have been that old, but yeah, he's an interesting guy. Ackerman paints a very clear picture of him. Um, but I'd like to know more. Uh, so Garfield reached out first to Levi Morton to offer him the vice presidency. Uh, Morton worked, I, I forget what he was in the party, but he was from New York. But, and he thought, yeah, that'll be a good way to get New York on, on, to back him is to get somebody from New York on the ticket, right? So Morton took the offer to Conkling for approval because he was a good party man, a good caucus man, I guess. And uh, Garfield, or um, sorry, Conkling said no. Conkling was like, no, don't do this. So Garfield then approached Chester Arthur for the position. Now, 
Arthur truly was a dark horse in the sense that he didn't have the political experience that anybody else did. I mean, Garfield wasn't a senator, but he at least had experience in national politics. Arthur's political prowess was as the collector of the Port of New York, which was an immensely powerful position, don't get me wrong. I mean, it was highly politically connected. He was responsible for collecting millions of dollars of revenue and oversaw a thousand jobs at the Port of New York. So he was very powerful from that perspective, but he didn't have the political backing or, or background, I guess, that everybody else did. Now, Conkling also advised Arthur to decline, but Arthur realized that this he was never going to get another chance like this, all right? This was an honor that, he, like Juliet, it's an honor he never dreamed thereof, right? Never, never dared to dream of. Um, I mean, Juliet was never dreaming to get married, but Arthur, you know, he's like, oh my God, vice president, that's amazing. So he went against Conkling, respectfully, all right? They didn't argue about it, but he just said, I'm never going to get this chance again. I'm going to do it. Um, and, and Arthur believed they could win. But winning meant pulling Conkling into an active campaign uh, with, along with General Grant. Having, and Grant became the first former president to actively campaign on behalf of his party, and he did so on behalf of Garfield. Garfield had to kiss some political butt, which he did, and he managed to bring that political machine of New York into the campaign on his behalf. Now, whether or not he actually promised choice patronage plums to New York is moot. Uh, New York felt that he did, and that he failed to deliver. Um, enter, at this point, Charles Guiteau, G-U-I-T-E-A-U, it's pronounced Guiteau. Uh, Guiteau had worked as a lawyer, but was largely unambitious in life. He had married, but was either separated or divorced. Guiteau believed Garfield would make a fine president and made his way to New York to join the stalwarts as, his, as a political canvasser, desiring to make speeches on behalf of Garfield, which he delivered like part of one speech one time. Um, he did write a pamphlet with his speech, though, and handed those out pretty vigorously. But he felt that this earned him a plum patronage post when Garfield won in November of 1880. Uh, he initially determined that he wanted the embassy in Venice, it might have been Vienna, but I think it was Venice. Ultimately, he decided he wanted the diplomatic posting of Paris. Now, understand, Guiteau was not in any way politically connected. He had no political savvy or know-how. He was a half-assed lawyer, if that. Um, I believe his wife had left him over domestic abuse allegations. He was essentially a grifter. I mean, all through his time in, in Washington, right after Garfield was nominated, Guiteau moved to D.C., and lived at various boarding houses, leaving each one before he was handed a bill, a bill of what was due. So he basically just grifted his way around Washington boarding houses. He had vaguely campaigned on behalf of Garfield, yet shortly after Garfield and family took up residence in the White House, Guiteau began making appearances at the White House requesting this posting to Paris. Now the White House in the 19th century was not at all like it is today. I mean, the structure was more or less the same. I mean, more security, obviously, today than there was back then. Um, but, you know, after we rebuilt it after the War of 1812, it's, that's what it has looked like, essentially, for the last 200 years. But back then, the White House was seen less as the president's residence and more as the people's house. So at least through Garfield's term, I'm, I'm, I will find out through reading these books when it changed, but at least when Garfield was president, the house was routinely opened up for we the people to come and visit the president. And I don't mean like today where you can tour the White House on a guided tour and only hit certain areas. I mean like they would literally host open houses where the people would come in and talk to the president directly. And, and this was considered very normal back then. 
Now, Crete uh, Garfield, so Lucretia, they called her Crete, also took to hosting weekly salons and actually met Ghetto during one of these when he came by and introduced himself as up for the position of consul to Paris, which she knew nothing about. She was just, you know, a charming, pleasant lady, and so she was very pleasant to him when he came by. Everybody was more or less pleasant to him. So, uh, you know, everybody from the stalwart party, everybody in Garfield's administration, everybody who had contact with him was very pleasant, professional, polite. This is how things were back in the 19th century. There was no, dude, you look like a homeless, get the hell away from me. They were all very, oh, well, how nice to meet you, and yes, we'll see what we can do to help you. Um, and that was very normal. Now, almost immediately upon being elected, Garfield offered the position of Secretary of State to James Blaine of the Half-Breeds denied any cabinet positions to stalwart members. I, I think he offered uh, Levi Morton Department of the Navy, but Morton believed he was promised treasury and so declined. I think that's right. Conkling was annoyed by this. Very annoyed. He had been promised key positions and now he was seeing all these top plum spots go to his enemies in the half-breeds. But when Gateau made his request for Paris, Garfield referred him to Blaine as Secretary of State. And that made perfect sense to Gateau, of course. I mean, Secretary of State would absolutely oversee diplomatic postings. So he began making weekly trips to Blaine's office for this posting, to which he felt he was entitled because he one time gave a five-minute speech on behalf of Garfield during the campaign. And all the stalwarts were always kind to him, so he believed he was truly their friend. Now, begins the battle for patronage. Garfield's cabinet choices were all approved immediately by the Senate, Every other post he wanted became a battle between Conkling and Garfield for control of the party. And it vacillated back and forth. Um, and they would make an agreement, Garfield would go home, and Blaine would step in and be like, dude, what the hell? How are you giving them all this stuff? And Garfield would change his mind. And it kind of went back and forth. And then ultimately, Garfield realized that he would never make all sides happy, so he decided to make himself happy, nominated William H. Robertson, who was a half-breed caucus member for the newly vacant and politically powerful position of collector of the Port of New York. Conkling lost his mind. Oh, he was pissed. Now, several things happened almost simultaneously to create this absolutely perfect storm of political mayhem. Um, first off, Lucretia became very ill. I think they thought it was dysentery or typhoid or something, but for over a month, her fever ran between 100 and 104 degrees, and she, she was very sick. And Garfield was essentially consumed with concern for his wife and refused to leave her side, uh, spending countless hours at her sickbed, caring for her, reading to her when she was awake. Uh, she did recover. Uh, she, she lived 37 years past Garfield's death. However, during this month of extreme illness, Blaine became fed up with Ghetto's constant request for the Paris consulate and told him it was never going to happen. He said, you're a nobody, you're never going to get Paris, leave me the hell alone. And the stalwarts tried to sideline Garfield's nomination of Robertson by slow tracking it. Basically, they would slowly start voting on all the other nominations, and we're talking thousands and thousands of posts here, because at that time in history, all government positions were patronage posts. There was no meritocracy. There was no, you're hired until you prove you can't do the job. If you, your job was secure for four years until the next president stepped in, four to eight years until the next president stepped in. This would allow Garfield to appoint Robertson temporarily as an emergency appointee when the Senate adjourned for the summer. And then when the Senate reconvened, they would overturn the nomination. Uh, Garfield, consumed with his fear for Lucretia's health, saw through this ploy and sent word to the Senate that he would relinquish all other nominees to whoever wanted it. Basically, you guys figure out who goes where, but I want Robertson. 
you give me Robertson. Now, in the 19th century, while all this turmoil is going on, the government has literally ground to a halt. I mean, back then, because all government employees were a matter of patronage, nobody was doing their job because they didn't know if they even still had a job. Uh, any seats that had been vacated on Garfield's win remained vacant. And with the Senate bickering over the actual appointments, government had come to a stop. They were doing nothing beyond arguing all day over who got what job. And he had, Garfield had had enough of Conkling. He was so sick of this. So Conkling and the other senator from New York, Tom Platt, Platt played a very dangerous gambit. Uh, they both resigned from the U.S. Senate. Said, if you're going to make Robertson collector of the Port of New York, we're out. We quit. Now, before the passage of the 17th Amendment in 1913, senators were not directly elected by the people. They were appointed by the state legislatures of individual states. So if the governor of New York had immediately informed the New York legislature of the two senators' resignation, uh, the, the rule was you had to give it a full week of a Tuesday from a Tuesday. So they resigned on a Monday. If the governor of New York had told them that day, and he knew because they had telegrams, telephones were new, but they weren't widespread, but they had telegrams and that information was like, bam, instant. If he had told them that day, then by the following week, the following Tuesday, so eight days later, they could have had Conkling and Platt back in New York or back in the White House or not White House, um, Senate. He didn't. For whatever reason, reasons of his own, he sat on the information for over a week which then allowed the floor to open up and it became a very hotly contested thing and the Senate in New or the legislature of New York now ground to a halt trying to vote on who was going to be the senators back to the White House or back to DC excuse me so this was such a gambit because if Conkling and Platt had been immediately reelected then that would have handed ultimate political power to Conkling in New York. I know appointment to any patronage ever in New York would have been made without Conkling express approval. Didn't work out that way for him. Um, th this gambit failed, ultimately, spectacularly, as a result of events that are coming. Now, Gateau, having been rebuffed by Blaine and seeing his friends in the stalwart caucus rebuffed and resigned, he now believed that he had a mandate from God to kill the faithless Garfield, who had failed to deliver on election promises to those who had campaigned on his behalf. So he bought an ivory-handled pistol. Um, he waffled briefly between an ivory-handled one and a wood-handled one, but he believed the ivory-handled one would look best in museums. Um, he thought he was, I mean, he thought he was on a mandate from God, so he thought that this, you know, this is going to look better. And he genuinely believed that Arthur would be grateful to him and would issue a presidential pardon and the long-awaited Paris consulate to reward him for his acts. Garfield, for his part, was just relieved that Crete was on the mend. Uh, the couple went to New Jersey to the shore to allow Crete to recuperate in the fresh sea air. And a few weeks after a few weeks there, Garfield returned to D.C. to wrap up political season. Um, back then, the f government's fiscal year ended on June 30th, so he wanted to get that year done. And then he was going to prepare for a national tour with Crete and their youngest children. On July 2nd, 1881, Garfield was traveled with Secretary of State Blaine to the train station to catch his train to start this tour. Uh, Blaine was seeing him off on this national tour, and while walking through the station, Gateau shot Garfield twice in the back. Uh, Garfield and Blaine, both having served in the war, recognized the sound of gunfire. Blaine turned to Garfield to try to get him to safety and realized that Garfield had been shot because he was already down on one knee, bleeding and vomiting profusely. 
uh, Gateau, for his part, walked out of the train station. I mean, it was it was a fast walk. He wasn't running, but he just walked, and right into the arms of a policeman. And right behind him was a crowd of people who informed the officer that Gateau had just shot the president, and they wanted to lynch him. Uh, Gateau was promptly placed under arrest, saying on his detention, "Quote: I did it. I will go to jail for it. I am a stalwart, and Arthur will be president." Arthur was genuinely horrified when he heard this news. He, he couldn't at first remember Gateau. It took him. He's like, "No, I've never even heard of this guy." I mean, he eventually remembered. Yeah, I, I did have contact with him during the campaign, but. I don't know him. He's just a, he was just a campaigner. He was just you know a guy who showed up in the office one day and wanted to help. Um, he never wanted to be president. All right, vice president was was enough power. That was all he was ever looking for. But <laughs> I mean, he was three years older than the president. There was no earthly reason for him to believe that he would outlive the president and be forced to pick up the mantle himself. And he, he was genuinely shocked and horrified. Um. The true horror, though, is that if Garfield had had even like a half-assed competent doctor, even by 19th century standards, he probably would have survived. And the bullet entered on his right back. He was shot at such an angle that it cut across his spine. It didn't sever it because he could still feel his feet and legs, uh, but it came to rest by his pancreas. Uh, the doctors, in trying to determine the path of the bullet, performed multiple probes with their hands, with their unwashed hands. Uh, germ theory had only just been introduced by Louis Pasteur and was still making its way through medical personnel as valid. Uh, Garfield developed massive infections. So that, coupled with the like oat and milk-only diet that the doctors had Garfield on, coupled with this infection, took Garfield from a healthy man of well over 200 pounds to about 130 pounds. So he, I mean, he lost almost 100 pounds in two months. You know, don't not recommended kids by anybody's standard. Um, when he succumbed to the infection and starvation on November, uh, September 18th, 1881, 79 days after he was shot. And if the doctors had just left him alone and allowed him to eat, uh, he would have recovered. The treatment was so bad, it was actually used in Guiteau's defense. I think he said on the stand, no, I didn't kill him, I only shot him. Medical malpractice killed him. That... Um, for the record, that did not work. Gateau was convicted of the assassination on January 5th, 1882 and hung on June 30th, 1882. They did not do multiple appeals or pleas. They just hung, hung his ass. And it's so sad. I mean, Garfield had just found his political backbone. He had only just realized that there was no making everyone happy and his only job was to run the country to the best of his ability. If he had survived, he would have ridden that wave of popularity to at least a second term and quite possibly a third term if he had wanted it. Um, because he was so popular right then, uh, and the the he knew he needed to be stoic for everything because the entire world is watching, and so he never made a sound when they were probing him, sticking their dirty ass hands into his you know open wound on his back. He never made a sound. He never cried out. Um, he let them do it. He was very stoic, and Crete took her cue from him, realized the whole world was watching, and just became very calm and stoic, never showing emotion. I mean, she did when he died because, you know, they were married, you know, 30 years or whatever, 30, 37 years, 30 years, I don't know. But she was, you know, they let the public in to see this, this tragedy that was happening to them. And they held up so well under it. My God. By the end, the, the end result of his assassination was phenomenal. Uh, Conkling never returned to power. 
uh, essentially following this and everybody knew that Conkling had been this antagonist in Garfield's life, his popularity tanked and he, he never returned to the Senate. He thought for sure he would. His political protege, Arthur, now President Conkling, approached Arthur and demanded Robertson be removed as collector of the Port of New York, and Arthur refused. Um, Arthur was like, no, no, this, this, Garfield's essentially a saint at this point. The American people have raised him up, and his last powerful act was to defy you and put Robertson into the Port of New York. If I overturn that, they'll hang me. They'll, they'll truly think that I was part of this assassination plot. I'm not going to do that. And uh, Conkling and Arthur never spoke again. They went from being very best friends to gone like that. The Civil Service Act of 1883 was signed into law by Arthur, effectively ending patronage, uh, making the government employment merit-based, in theory. And I have very definite opinions on the effectiveness of government employees. But for better or worse, they are no longer political appointments, mostly. I mean, there's, there's some positions that require Senate approval, but I think that number is limited to, like, there's, like, a little over a 1,000 postings that actually require Senate approval versus all government employees requiring Senate approval. This book was very well done, and it captured an exact moment in time, pulling all the pieces together into kind of this cogent snapshot of what happened and, more importantly, how this happened. And the author makes an excellent point. Uh, there have been four presidential assassins in American history, and of the four, Guiteau is seen as, as just a deranged madman. Yet of the four, Guiteau managed to affect actual change. Uh, his friend, Chester Arthur, did in fact become president. And as a direct result of Guiteau's action, the Civil Service Reform Act passed. I mean, like that. It passed with full bipartisan support and was signed in, like, like lightning fast almost, right? I mean, a scant two years after his death and it's passed. Um, Rutherford B. Hayes had made civil service reform his hallmark from 1877 to 1881. He'd been trying to get civil service reform passed. Um, but where Hayes failed to implement this change, Garfield's assassination just pushed it through on this wave of nationwide popular support. The, the entire country realized just how toxic and dangerous patronage was at this point. I feel bad for Garfield and for Lucretia. His potential as a leader was never realized. And he was snatched away by his petty bickering and partisan politics and this bizarre belief that someone owes you something. No one owes you anything ever. Except for maybe the 20 bucks you loaned, you know, your uncle last week or whatever. But it was this belief in the dangers of patronage that saw that Civil Service Act push through and become law. Uh, I do wish there had been more of Garfield's background in the book, but the book wasn't, strictly speaking, about Garfield. It was about this single year in history that led to immense change and changed quite frankly, the course of the nation. A lot, I mean, if we still had to rely on patronage, I mean, I almost wish we did because the, the political fighting would be spectacular. But I, mean, I think the reason there's not more about him is the presidents from like Hayes through McKinley are just not seen as particularly interesting to historians. And I'm not sure why this was the, the golden age for America and the presidents were as much a part of this as anything else. I just know from having a hell of a time finding recent books on these gentlemen. I mean, there is a new book on Garfield that's set to release in July of this year, but I don't want to backtrack and I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to skip a precedent. So I, mean, I put it on my wish list. I might revisit him later, but and I also want to read books on Henry Clay, John Calhoun, Daniel Webster, and Roscoe Conkling and Tammany Hall, which was the Democratic war machine of New York. Uh, these men made America as much as Jay Gould, J.P. Chase, Vanderbilt, Cornelius, and Rockefeller and Carnegie, right? 
and we know the, the robber barons, there's a book I can read on them too, but the, the political machinations truly is what allowed these men to flourish. So why wouldn't we be as interested in the presidents that made it happen? I don't know. Those are topics for future book reports. I, I'm going off on a tangent. I'll pull it back. I quite enjoyed this week's book of the week. It was fascinating and a dark moment in American history. Uh, the power struggles were very real and foreshadowed to a great degree the current political climate in America. That's it for this week. If you like what you saw, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. I will not see you next week because next week I will be on a boat in the middle of the ocean, but I will see you on February 12th. Bye.